recognizing a communist. Physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently. Cold War. When did it start? When did it end? And what was it all about? These are not the questions that we are going to answer today. Hello everyone, this is Al from Point of Insanity Game Studio. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Geekery in General. The topic of today's show is how to run a Cold War themed campaign for your role-playing game system of choice. During this show, I would like to talk a little bit about the Cold War, some of my memories of it, as well as how to work it into your role-playing game. Before we begin, though, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what inspired me to do this episode. Not too long ago, I did an episode with my friend James about YouTube gaming and retro gaming. During that episode, I mentioned a computer game I liked called Freedom Force, and the game takes place during the Cold War, and I mentioned that one of the main characters was fired from the Manhattan Project because he accused one of his co-workers of selling U.S. secrets to the communists. When I mentioned that, James looked at me kind of funny, like he really didn't know what I was talking about. So I explained it, it to him very briefly. And later I did talk to him a little bit more about the subject, and right now it seems that, at least in my area, the schools really don't talk very much about the Cold War. It's not really a, a focus of the curriculum. Well, in some ways, I guess I can't really blame them for not focusing too much on it. I would imagine that in the social studies and history classes nowadays, Probably their lessons are focused more on the war on terrorism as opposed to the Cold War. But it's still something that I think we should all be aware of. Because you know what they say, those who do not know the past are doomed to repeat it. But in some ways, maybe it makes sense that he didn't really understand a lot about it and that their school doesn't focus on it. And that's because how we view an event can change depending on how far we are from when that event occurred. Depending on who you asked, the Cold War started in the mid to late 1940s, so right after World War II, and didn't officially end until 1991. 
This would have been either during the end of my freshman year in high school or the beginning of my sophomore year. So if we lived through an event, are old enough to remember it, or maybe if it was before your time, then that can certainly change your perceptions of it. So please keep this in mind during today's show. I was born in the mid-70s and I grew up in the 80s. So I can only truly explain my perception of the Cold War from the perspective of a child who grew up in that time frame, no matter how much research I do into the subject. Likewise, one of these days, my son, he is going to have a different perspective of the Cold War because he was born many years after it ended. And on the same token, any listeners who, maybe if you're older than me, and if you grew up and were an adult in the 60s or 70s or maybe older, I mean, I don't know how, how the, what the age of my average listener is, but if we have anyone out there who was an adult or a teenager during the 50s, again, you're going to have very different perspectives of the Cold War than I could ever have. While I was doing some research, I did talk to my mother a little bit about what she remembered of the Cold War. And like me, she remembered it as a time of great fear. Though there is one thing she experienced that I never did, and those were air raid drills. She remembered when she was in elementary school that they would have these weekly drills where they would tell the kids what to do in the event that air raid sirens went off. Now, I'm not an expert in the Cold War, but I do remember learning about it in my social studies classes. We watched a few movies on the subject and the occasional documentary. There is one movie I remember that did stand out for me, and that was The Missiles of October. This movie was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. We found out that the Soviets were building missile bases in Cuba. So this made the threat of a nuclear strike against the U.S. by the Soviets a very real and very valid fear. Fortunately, the situation ended diplomatically, with the U.S. pulling our missiles out of Italy and Turkey, while the Soviets pulled their missiles out of Cuba. Before we go any further, let's define what is that term Cold War mean. A Cold War is described as a conflict between two countries where there's very little actual direct fighting between the two sides. Usually, a Cold War is fought through spies or through proxy wars. A proxy war is when the two warring powers support smaller countries that are engaged in a regional war. For example, the Vietnam War is often seen as a proxy war between the U.S. and Soviet Union, as is the Soviet-Afghan War that occurred through much of the 80s. There were two things that marked the Cold War in the minds of those who lived through all or part of it. Nuclear war and the thought that you can't trust anyone. Both sides, the U.S. and Soviet Union, used propaganda films to try to influence the hearts and minds of their citizens. Now, I haven't seen any of the Soviet propaganda films, but I'm sure if you go and look on YouTube, you'll find them. The U.S. propaganda films that I remember seeing in documentaries or in history class, it usually focused on the threats that 
there could be communist spies living in your neighborhood. You never know if that new next-door neighbor is actually a communist. And as I mentioned, the other main thought during this time was the threat of nuclear annihilation. That thought was never very far from my young mind. I recall while growing up in the 80s, the Soviets were usually pictured as the enemy in a lot of action movies and TV shows. For example, there was the movie Red Dawn that depicted the Soviet invasion of the U.S. When the movie was remade, North Korea replaced Russia as the enemy in order to make the film more relevant. And I can't really blame them for doing that change because, like I said, well, we certainly have disagreements with Russia and there are people who will certainly see Russia as still being dangerous. Our hostilities towards that country aren't anywhere near what they were like during the Cold War. Nowadays, North Korea would be considered a greater threat to the U.S. than Russia, at least from a military perspective. I grew up in the city of New Berlin, Wisconsin. On the western edge of my quiet little hometown, near the border of the city of Waukesha, there is an abandoned plot of land. I remember my mother telling me it was called Missile Park because for part of the Cold War it housed a U.S. missile base. It was one of several bases built to shield the larger city of Milwaukee from bombers. Although it was closed down four years before I was born, for me it was a specter of an age gone by. I even remember that there were fallout shelter signs by the stairs of the locker rooms at my old high school, though I'm not sure if they're still there or not. with nuclear weapons. Danger will come not just from blast or heat or nearby radiation effect, but also from fallout. Fallout, which may occur miles and miles away from the blast. You need to know about fallout, what it is, how to detect it, and what to do to protect yourself against it. Everybody needs to know. Yes, this does mean you. Watch and listen. One day, these facts may save your life. Another aspect of the Cold War that we studied in my high school classes was McCarthyism. This was named for a former Wisconsin senator Senator Joseph McCarthy. The term McCarthyism has become attached to the practice of accusing and condemning people without proper evidence. Joseph McCarthy led several communist witch hunts, as they were called, and one of the movies I remember seeing in history class was, well, I don't remember the name of it, but I think it starred Robert Redford. It was about, I think he was either an actor or a radio personality who was added to the Hollywood blacklist. If Senator McCarthy felt that you were a communist or a communist sympathizer, 
he would put you on this blacklist. So if you were on this blacklist, your life could be ruined forever just because you wouldn't be able to find work and people would be very wary about associating with you. Perhaps, though, one of the most terrifying aspects of the Cold War was the MAD doctrine. MAD is short for Mutually Assured Destruction. During the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet Union spent tons of money developing nuclear weapons that they really didn't have any intention of using. Let's think about that for a moment. They were spending truckloads of money to develop weapons of mass destruction that they had no intention of using. The basic premise behind MAD is that if you fire one missile at us, we're going to fire a hundred missiles at you. So basically it was trying to say, we've got more missiles than you, so if you attack us, you can be sure that we're going to blow you up in return. So don't start anything. Other people call this the nuclear deterrent. Now I apologize if I'm starting to come off as being political here. It's really not my intent. I'm just trying to look back at the time. Again, thinking of the senselessness of the MAD doctrine and how we felt the need to develop all these nuclear weapons. Sometimes I wonder, what would the world be like today if both sides, the U.S. and Russia, devoted a fraction of that money that they spent on these nuclear weapons and put that into studying things like medicine or trying to find renewable energy sources or if they devoted it to education. Let that sink in for a moment and think about it. Okay, well I'm going to get off the political rant there, so like I said, I apologize if it came off as overly political, but it's just one of those little things that I really think needs to be said, and even today, I think it's something that we need to really think about. But perhaps what is even scarier is one of the things that governments don't really like to talk about. There have been occasions where we were very, very close to nuclear war. The Cuban Missile Crisis was one of those situations. And again, fortunately, that was resolved diplomatically. There have been times in both the Soviet Union military and the U.S. military where the radar systems gave false warnings saying that there were missiles heading our way. And fortunately, due to the cool-headed thinking of the military personnel, they realized that these were glitches and they didn't fire upon any missiles that weren't actually there. So like I said, it is really kind of terrifying when you think about it how there have been times where the world probably almost ended because of computer glitches. Also, I have a friend who has an aunt that used to work at one of the radar bases up in Alaska. And she told him that this kind of stuff does happen probably on a more regular basis than we'd really like to think about. Where, again, their uh, radars detect anomalies that they think are missiles. But fortunately, uh, so far, 
they realized that these were just glitches or these were not missiles heading towards the U.S. So, like I said, thanks to those military personnel on both sides that did not start World War III. So how can we take this atmosphere of mistrust, uncertainty, a bleak outlook on the future, and put that into a fun little role-playing game campaign? Well, first, you can look to some of the fiction of the time to get ideas. Cold War fiction tends to fall into a couple different categories. First, there's the who-can-you-trust category. This is the type of fiction where there's usually some sort of hidden agenda that one of the characters is following. Again, you never know when that next-door neighbor could actually be a communist spy. The other type is, oh my god, the nukes are coming and they're going to drop on us and they're going to kill us all! So if you decide to use that second category, you could choose to run a campaign where the players are trying to prevent a nuclear war. Or you could even set your campaign during the nuclear war or afterwards, whether you want to do it immediately after the bombs fall or maybe a generation or two later. One of the things to keep in mind, though, is if you really want to stick with a Cold War atmosphere, we do have to tone down the technology level. You don't want to use anything past the mid-90s because, as I said before, a lot of historians point to 1991 as the year that the Cold War officially ended. Here are some examples of fiction that you can use to get a little bit of inspiration for Cold War campaigning. One British series I've heard about, though I've never seen, is called Threads. I think it was a radio drama. I'm, it may have been a TV show. I'm not sure. But the thing that was so terrifying about this particular series is it tried to realistically depict the effects of nuclear winter. The story begins with two families, and it follows their trials as they you know, survive the events leading up to the nuclear war, the nuclear war itself, and then what happens afterwards. Another piece of fiction you might want to look at is On the Beach. It's based on a novel, and there was also a movie for it as well. In this particular work, most of the survivors of World War III are living in Australia because there's this huge cloud of radioactive fallout that is circulating around the Northern Hemisphere. And everyone knows that eventually this cloud of fallout is going to make it to Australia, the last habitable place on the Earth, and kill everyone. Now, for most of the movie and novel, it focuses on the crew of a U.S. submarine. They pick up what seems to be a Morris code transmission from the western coast of the United States. So they go to try to find the survivors, if there are any. However, they eventually find out that the Morse code signal is actually coming from a bottle that is hitting against something in the wind. And then they return to Australia, and for the rest of the book or movie, everyone is pretty much deciding how they want to die before the nuclear fallout reaches them and kills them all from radiation poisoning. 
Another book to look at is Failsafe. In this book, there is an accidental alarm that causes the U.S. to drop nuclear weapons on Russia. And in order to stop Russia from retaliating, the U.S. president contacts the Russian president and tells him that he's going to nuke New York so that they can say it was just this one exchange. And what really made this a tough decision for the president in this, this book is that his wife was living in New York at the time. So, again, he basically had to sacrifice his family as well as everyone who was living in New York to prevent World War III. Again, you're probably noticing a fairly dark, bleak picture that some of these authors were painting of you know, what they thought the Cold War was going to do to humanity. Earlier, I mentioned Red Dawn. This is another good place to look for ideas for a Cold War campaign. Again, it takes place during a Soviet invasion of the U.S. And in the movie, there's a group of students who are in a town that's being occupied by the Russian forces. And they decide to call themselves the Wolverines after their high school mascot. And they wage a guerrilla war against the Soviets. Another book you might want to look at is The Manchurian Candidate. This is a book, and I believe there was a film for it as well, where the communists brainwash a U.S. citizen to turn him into a secret assassin. Now, if you're looking for a more humorous and lighthearted look at the Cold War, I recommend Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. One of the scenes that I remember from this movie is there was a bomber that was going to go drop a nuclear weapon on Russia. However, the Bombay doors wouldn't open. So there was one of the crew members. He gets in there to try to find a way to open it, and he's uh, trying to kick this bomb so it goes down. And, well, he's standing on top of this bomb when it drops. So you can pretty much imagine what happens. And uh, it shows the guy he's riding this bomb as it's about to drop onto Moscow, waving around a cowboy hat and hooting and hollering. Like I said, it takes a more uh, humorous, satirical look at the Cold War. Well, once you've seen a few movies, maybe read a book or two, to try to find some inspiration for the Cold War campaign, the next question is, what game system should you use? Now, since a Cold War-style campaign is going to probably involve a lot of espionage, it'll usually work well with modern or spy-based role-playing games. A couple that I can think of off the top of my head would be D20 Modern, or if you can find it, TSR made a spy game called Top Secret, though it's certainly possible to make a Cold War campaign work with other role-playing games as well. Superhero RPGs offer a very interesting take on a Cold War campaign. Now remember, during the arms race, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were trying to see who could develop the biggest and most powerful weapons. So what's to say that the sides, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, might not have did experiments to create superhuman soldiers? Now this is something that has certainly been explored already. When I said the word super soldier, you probably thought of Captain America, right? 
probably, don't worry, that's cool. Though, of course, uh, Captain America was World War II, so a little bit before the start of the Cold War. But that does give you one idea for how you could explain superheroes and superhuman powers in an espionage spy-type campaign. You might decide that all your players start out as men and women who are enlisted in the armed forces, and they may have volunteered for genetic experimentation, which caused them to gain their superpowers. And of course, the Soviets may have also done the same thing as well. So that sets the stage for a perfect uh, Russia versus U.S. superhuman battle. Now, a fantasy role-playing game is going to be a little trickier, but it can be done. One way you could explain magical powers would be they could have come from extraplanar beings who have an interest in making sure that a nuclear war either happens or does not happen. You know, you could easily have uh, the good guys being supported by angelic beings like solars or divas or planetars. And on the other side, you could have various demons or devils that are empowering the people who they want to cause a nuclear war. Now, if you wanted to use the psychic powers from Dungeons & Dragons, again, you can certainly do that because that would fit in well with the superhero explanation I gave where the characters could have got their psychic powers from genetic experimentation. Or it's also possible they could have gotten these psychic powers from these extraplanar beings that I mentioned. It might seem strange trying to incorporate fantasy elements into what is essentially a modern style of gameplay. But one place you might want to look for a little bit of inspiration and to explain this is there's a book and a movie called The Men Who Stare at Goats. It is about a theory that the U.S. Army seriously explored the possibility of psychic and paranormal abilities as weapons. So that's another way you could explain the presence of magic and psychic powers in your Cold War campaign. Also, the U.S. did have a program called Project Artichoke, and this was experiments with mind control. So that could be another explanation for psionics or possibly some magic powers that are meant to control a person, you know, like charm person or command are two spells that I can think of off the top of my head. Another relic of the Cold War that you can introduce into your campaign is the number station. Number stations are creepy. If you have a shortwave radio and you flip through the channels, sometimes you might encounter a frequency where there is what seems to be a coded message being broadcast. Sometimes the message is in Morse code. Other times you might encounter what seems to be a random stream of numbers, or I don't remember the proper name for them, like sometimes when people are spelling something, instead of saying like A, B, C, they might be like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. If any of my listeners, if you either are in the military or you were in the military, I know they use this system a lot. I don't remember exactly what it's called, though. But sometimes you'll encounter that on these broadcasts as well. These broadcasts were sometimes said to be so regular 
that you could set a watch by it. No one exactly knows what number stations are, but it is believed that a number station is a communication from a government to its spies operating in another country. I'm going to play for you a short clip from a very well-known number station called the Lincolnshire Poacher. Now I don't know about you, but when I listen to clips like that, I get a chill down my spine. And one of the reasons is, I don't know what I'm listening to. Maybe it was just a random message that had no particular meaning. Maybe it was an order for a spy to go commit an act of espionage or sabotage. Or maybe it was even a message to an assassin telling him to go out and kill someone. So if you're the kind of person who enjoys working with codes, you might have fun introducing number stations into your campaign. Now here's why the government would use a number station to communicate with its spies. It's actually a fairly secure method of communication. Part of the problem with things like email and cell phone calls and websites is those things can be tracked. However, with a shortwave radio, you can't track that. You can kind of pinpoint where the transmission is coming from, but it's impossible to know who all has been listening to that message. It's kind of like with a civilian radio station. You know, again, you can find out where the radio station is broadcasting from, but there's no way to know who all in your local area or who all in the listening area was listening to a, that particular broadcast. Well, here's what some people think the numbers on the number station mean. One method that governments might use to communicate to their spies is using something called a one-time pad. A one-time pad looks like a sheet of paper that has a seemingly random sequence of numbers on it. Usually they're grouped in sets of like four or five numbers. These are usually made to be quite small, small enough to fit inside of a matchbox or a, a soap container, something that's very easy to store and to uh, sneak around with. Also, the paper that these one-time pads were made of are usually designed to be destroyed very easily. So that way, after the spy has used the one-time pad, he can easily burn it up. Now here's how it works. When you're using your one-time pad, you listen to the radio station and you write down the sequence of numbers. Let's just say for the sake of argument that the person that's trying to communicate to me is sending out sequences of five numbers. Okay, so what I would do is I would listen and I would note that number. And I would subtract that number from the first number on my one-time pad. So let's say that the first number on my one-time pad is 
one, two, three, four, five. And the first number I hear in my broadcast is one, two, three, four, zero. So what I would do is I would subtract one, two, three, four, zero from one, two, three, four, five, and the answer would be five. I would then use the whatever code sequence that I was trained to use. Now, usually that number is going to represent a letter of the alphabet. Well, in the case of the English language, E is the fifth letter of the alphabet. So the first letter in the first word of the instruction I'm receiving would be the letter E. So it's kind of a long and tedious process to go through the code, but it does have the advantage of the fact that it's easy to calculate if you just got a pencil and a paper. So you don't need any specific program or a sophisticated computer in order to decipher the code. Now another way you can introduce the Cold War atmosphere into your campaign is to use McCarthyism. Remember what I said before, uh, McCarthyism is a practice of accusing someone of something without actually having proper evidence for it. So the players could discover that they are on a blacklist. So now they have to try to find a way to prove their innocence and prove that they're not spies, that they're not a danger to national security. Now if you want to have some fun, and if you've got a group that really enjoys role-playing, one of the things you can do when you start the campaign is have everyone draw a piece of paper from a bucket or a bowl or a hat or whatever. And on that slip of paper, that says who you're really working for. So let's say you've got a group of five people. You might have, say, four members of the group that are working for the CIA. And then the last person is actually working for the KGB. So what that player would have to do is he's got his own secret orders, so he has to try to follow his agenda and his orders without being discovered by the rest of the players. Now, if you're planning on doing a long-term campaign, one thing you can do, especially if you want to introduce superpowers or uh, magic into the campaign, is you could have the person who is working for the enemy agency well, the real character may have been captured, and he could actually be tied up in a prison somewhere. So what the player is actually playing might be a doppelganger. So you can tell the player, you know, in secret, of course, that, look, this is what happened. Your character was kidnapped, and a doppelganger or a shapeshifter has taken his place. However, you will still receive the same amount of experience points as everyone else because we'll assume that your character manages to escape his captors and he gets the same amount of experience doing whatever he needs to do to get back to safety. That could also have some fun scenarios when the players, let's say that the person who's working for the KGB is named Bob, and all of a sudden they find that there's two Bobs. One of them claims to be the real Bob. The other, of course, is also claiming to be the real Bob. But you know there can't be two real Bobs, so you know one of them is a spy. So now you have to try to find a way to determine which Bob is the real Bob. Well, this is going to bring this episode to a close. I hope that if you do decide to run a Cold War themed espionage spy 
type campaign that I've given you some good ideas and even if you don't have any intentions of running a Cold War themed campaign I hope that you find the material that I've covered to be interesting. Now if you've got ideas for any other topics you'd like to see me cover in the future you can always contact me. You can either contact me through my website POIGamestudio.com or you can go to the Point of Insanity Game Studio page on Facebook and leave a comment on the page. So thanks again for listening everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming.